Um, I want to just ask you real quickly. You don't have to raise your hands. I did this first service, but it looks like you guys are a good looking group of people. Um, you're put to, pretty put together. So I, I think I know the answer to this, but most of you take care of yourselves. I know a lot of you work out, you walk, you exercise, you do what needs, you know, needs to be done to stay out of the hospital and, you know, stay away from doctors, things like that. Um, so I just wanted to ask you just by show of hands, uh, if you exercise, if you walk, if you work out, if you do anything like that, or if you have, um, really it, it sort of divides into two types of people. One of the types of people is those who like to do it by themselves, right? Just the loners, the ones who don't want a partner, who don't need anybody else to, to be with them when they do stuff, uh, who just like to be just them, whatever it is they're doing, whether it's weights or walking or, you know, I went cross country skiing around here, that's coming, right? Quick, quickly. I'm one of those people. I don't like a partner. How many of you don't like partners? You just want to be by yourself when you do something like that. Okay. There are a lot of us out there, me, my headset, whatever I'm listening to. So how many of you um, enjoy a partner? How many of you like to be with somebody else? Okay. There's many people around here who like the partners, different personalities, different strokes, different folks. Now, my wife and I are different as you might imagine in a lot of ways. And uh, one of the ways is, is that she's one of the like a partner kind of people. And I'm not, I'm one of the wanna be by myself kind of people. And when I go to the gym, it's sort of me time. I like to think about my uh, stuff going on. You guys work, listen to music, what I want to listen to. Don't like talking to anybody. Um, you know, just sort of uh, becomes kind of self-absorbed for um, the hour or whatever it is. Now, now, Joy, if she doesn't have somebody to work out with or a class or friends, um, sometimes she won't do it. She just likes that community. And so I realized that I was becoming a little too self-absorbed when I was more worried about me and getting my time in and doing what I wanted to do, when Joy was missing her time because there wasn't anybody who would go with her. And so I decided that we'd start working out together again. I asked her, of course, and she said, sure. And so we started working out together, not all the time, but you know, in those times that, that um, there's not one of her normal people who she works out with. And it goes, it's going great. I mean, first of all, it's lots of fun to work out with her because she's really good looking and it's fun to be able to be at the gym with somebody. Last week we talked about awareness leads to discontent. Not when you're married to my wife, it doesn't. Um, but we're working out, right? And so she's down on a bench and she's lifting some weights. She's doing bench press. And I put 25s on the bar and she's just cranking them out. And I'm like, my goodness, look at her. She's just killing it. You know, I want everybody to look at my wife. And, um, and so then it's my turn. Now we're kind of getting used to this, you know, and Joy has a different philosophy in, than I do usually when we go to the gym. And I said, now you have to spot me. And she goes, what's that mean? And I said, well, that means that if um, I drop the weights on my neck, you have to pick them up so I don't die. And she goes, uh, well, I can't do that. I put a little bit more on than what she was lifting. And, and she goes, uh, I, I can't do that. I said, well, you have to do it. I said, I'm not gonna need a bunch of help. I'm just gonna need a little help probably. But if I need help, you have to keep me from, from dying. And she thought for a second and she goes, okay, I got it. And I said, what are you gonna do? What are you thinking? And she says, well, it's easy. She goes, if you drop the weights on your neck, I'm just gonna scream as loud as I can. And she goes, one of these big guys will come running over and help me. And I said, Joy, that would be awful. Not only would you humiliate me, you'd scare to death everybody in the gym. Now, that is, uh, to me, sort of consistent or similar to where we're heading today. We can't be so self-absorbed that it's all about us. We have to recognize or realize that other people in our lives are important. That living life in community, even though sometimes it's a little bit awkward, sometimes it may be a little out of our comfort zone, perhaps even a little embarrassing, it doesn't give us the excuse to just do our thing our way 
and ignore the world around us. We're going to be talking about that today as we continue to talk about happiness. Now, I know I've seen this so many times, even this week as I observe humans, you guys, my friends, our families, I see that there are many of us that aren't very happy. I see people who are frustrated, who are overwhelmed, who are angry, who are just upset all the time, who just seem to have one ax to grind after another, after another, after another, an edge that just, I mean, it won't quit. And as I watch, sometimes I get a little curious and I'm like, my goodness, we Christians should be the, the happiest people in the world. But sometimes we're not. And I ask myself why, and I love asking those questions because not only are we in the middle of a series, week number five of seven on happiness, but the Bible speaks to how it is we can truly be happy. But the problem is, or the challenge is, we have to take the word of God and we have to take it where it sits, which is timeless, 100% true. It's all we need to apply to our lives to live for Jesus, but we have to take it and we have to put it right over here where we live down deep in our hearts so that we live differently. And it's a challenge. We have to choose to do a couple of things. One is to take God at his word. And that's going to be a stretch for some of us today. Because today I'm going to be talking to you about measuring the success of your life by how much of your life you're giving away. The success of a person's life is measured by how much of my life I'm giving away. And we're born sinful and selfish. And we feel that if we don't scratch and bite and claw to get what we have to have, what we need, what we think we deserve, that fate is going to set us adrift and we're going to end up way down this road without having the stuff that we desire, that we want. We're going to be lost. And the Bible says, relax, take a deep breath. Grab the word of God by both hands, look intently into it, apply it, and it will set you free. And that's why I'm excited about our message today. I wish that I could take what's in here and just put it right in there without it having to come out of here. Because there's a good chance by coming out of here, you're not going to catch what I believe God's put in here. But I'm going to do my very best because this is exciting and I know It'll change your life. Now we are in Philippians chapter one. Philippians chapter one. Philippians was a book written by the apostle Paul. The apostle Paul we consider to be the greatest Christian who ever lived. Now, not because he was born the greatest Christian, not because he had a spiritual silver spoon in his mouth, not because he walked and his feet didn't touch the ground, that he never made a mistake, that he was blessed in charm beyond all measure. He came up in a religious circle where he would have been one of the people Jesus was talking about when Jesus was condemning people for being too religious that they were no good here on earth. He was somebody who, when he became a believer, was kicked from one place to the next, was dismissed, was talked about, had people who turned their back on him. He was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was shipwrecked, he was snake bit, and he kept coming back. He showed himself faithful over time through adversity and proved that not only was the gospel real, but it was the only thing worth giving our lives to. So I call him great. A pastor, an old man by this time, writing a letter to a church he started, a church he loved, 
a church he had sacrificed and visited several times, sacrificed two to get started. And he's writing a book on how to be truly happy, to be filled with joy. And in the beginning of this book, he's praying. And the apostle Paul is a pastor praying for his friends, for his people. So personal, it's so powerful. Let's unpack it together. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Now we're in a seven week series, remember? First week we talked about love, that happy people are loving people. Second week we talked about knowledge, happy people are knowing people. Third week we talked about insightful people being truly happy that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern. Last week, we talked about discerning people what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I know that when I read a verse like this, it probably just sort of just 36,000 foot just fly over and you're like, all right, whatever, it's Bible, it's probably true. I don't get it. That's why we do what we do. That's why we take a word or a phrase, we discuss it, and then we go to another passage in scripture, and there could be many different passages that we choose to point back toward that word or phrase, to explain it and understand one of the facets of application so that the word of God literally comes to life in, or to life in, in your life, in your heart. So we've done that each week, we're gonna do it today. And today we're going to talk about what it means to be pure and what it means to be blameless. This phrase. The Apostle Paul says, if you want to be happy, you'll be pure. If you want to be happy, you'll be blameless. And you and I fight our sin nature. But you and I are created to give our lives away and not truly happy unless we're living that way. Divine design. God designed us to live this way. When you and I find ourselves living in opposition to this, it may be natural, but it's not right. So let's look together at happy people being pure-hearted people. We're tempted to believe that happiness comes from acquiring things. We talked about that week one and week two. But happiness is an outcome of what we sow or plant into our lives. Knowing that truth is like a paint can, it can make no difference until you apply it. Doing makes a difference, especially when we do for others. We won't be happy as long as we are all about us. Now, would love to know how that statement hits you. If you can say with honesty and integrity before the Lord, I won't be happy as long as my life is all about me. Man, we're making some serious spiritual progress. Sometimes I have a hard time raising my hand before the Lord and saying that because I fight my nature. I fight my tendencies. There's a war that goes on. We'll discuss that a little bit more as we spend some more time together this morning. So let's look here at this phrase, the phrase of the day, so that we'll be able to discern what's best. And here's where we get to the rubber road moments 
we may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now, the word pure here, it's a compound thought, pure and blameless. It's important for us to spend some time because I wanna know what the apostle Paul is saying to us. When he says, if you wanna be happy, you wanna be pure. And I'm like, well, what does pure mean? I don't get it. You might think it means something. I might think it means something. Well, if you wanna be happy, you gotta be blameless. Well, no one can blame me for anything. We don't really understand. I wanna take some time and really break it down. There was a concept here that this word pure uh, referred to or described. It was a word that determined purity, but it was a very specific way that it determined purity. Pottery was very, very common back in the Apostle Paul's day and Jesus' day. They had wood, they had pottery, they had dishes that were made of pottery, they had vases that were made of pottery, even sometimes furniture was made of clay. And the better the potter, the more skilled he was at not just shaping the different things, but curing them and making sure that these things were of high quality. Now, the problem happened, or the, the problems happen when the potter wasn't quite as good, when he took some shortcuts, when he didn't do quite what he was supposed to do, and the cracks would begin to appear in this pottery and no one would wanna buy it. So you had dishonest people who were potters and they were shaping clay and sometimes cracks would begin to form or begin to happen and they would take wax and they would put the wax inside the cracks and they'd put some dirt that kind of made it you know, look like pottery and, and they would sort of put it out in the sun to where it all blended together. And they would show it to you and go, here, this is a good one. There's no, no cracks, high quality pottery, no issues. But discerning people knew that if you took the pottery and you held it up into the sunlight, that the sun would reveal the cracks that are there. So a person who was a discerning, wise buyer would test everything by sunlight. Maybe this illustration will help. Last week, I gave away uh, $5 bills in worship. You remember when I had a lottery ticket and a $5 bill and I, I offered them both service. I offered to people, do you want a lottery ticket potentially worth $670 million or five bucks? In both services, the wise men took five bucks and both of my lottery tickets were worthless. I wanted so bad to win just so that I could call them and go, ha, I got the money and you didn't. I was gonna give them five more dollars out of it. This is a $100 bill and this came out of the Melek treasury and it's not gonna be given to any body is going right back to Mrs. Melick. But when we sold a car not too long ago, a person was going to bring us some cash. When they came into our house and we were, you know, giving them the car and they were giving us the cash, my wife says, give me the cash. And I'm like, oh, not my first rodeo. I'm not giving you the cash, baby. She goes, no, 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 give me the cash. And so I did. And she whips out this pin. She had been up to like CVS and bought, bought this pin. And this pin right? You can take the pin and you can make it go across the bill and it turns a certain color. And she checked every single bill that this guy gave us because she's been, you know, through this stuff before. Now there's another way you can tell if the bills are, are authentic, you can hold them up to the light. And if you hold them up to the light, you can see a little band that's kind of woven in the fabric and it'll tell you whether it's counterfeit or whether it's not. Same principle here for the first part of this compound word. The Apostle Paul says, I pray that you have the kind of life that can be tested by sunlight. Filling in the cracks with things that appear to be spiritual, but really are just selfish. Polishing them up, presenting them to others as we have it all together, but in reality can't stand the test. 
Well, there's another concept here that's equally as important. They go together, and it's part of the Apostle Paul's prayer. It's part of us wanting and choosing to be truly happy, and that is, is that we can be blameless. Now, this word blameless here is another important word, and, and it really speaks to moral integrity, that I could be without offense. Now, in your app, you have all these notes, and there'll be things today that I'm not covering that I don't have time to cover that are also in your notes on the app. So if you have it, you probably want to download those if, you, if you're interested and kind of hang on to those, maybe even read them a little later because there's stuff in there that I'm not going to talk about. But it, as we look at this word blameless, this moral integrity, it means to be without offense, to very simply be who we say that we are, to live a life free of hypocrisy and a life that's consistent with Jesus' teachings. Now, hypocrisy is a loaded word. When I was a kid, the biggest problem most people had with Christians in the church was hypocrisy, right? Church is just full of a bunch of hypocrites. And I learned early on to say, well, that's true, ha ha, we're all hypocrites, and just sort of dismiss it. And then as I grew up a little bit, I realized, you know, they really are right. The world's full of hypocrites, right? Everyone says they are something and sometimes don't really match up with the way we live. But shouldn't the church be different? Now, the Apostle Paul, as he writes, has Jesus' teaching in mind. And the Apostle Paul points to Jesus and says, I hope you guys look. Jesus, when he teaches, always points to the Father and says, hey, I hope you guys look. So I'm pointing at Paul, who's pointing and thinking about Jesus, and we're gonna break this concept down even a little further, and I wanna land on this idea of hypocrisy, and I wanna begin it with this statement. We're gonna talk about the Pharisees. The Apostle Paul knew a lot about the Pharisees because he used to belong there. Pharisees are the evil villains of the Bible. They're the religious. And they were known by their hypocrisy. Now, Galatians is a book we're going to get to in a minute. Philippians, the book that we're talking about right now, written to both people who had a Jewish background, but also a lot of people who didn't have any Christian background at all. So the context they would have understood this word hypocrisy in would have been like an actor, right? Who's your favorite actor, right? I don't know who it would be. You probably have an actor or actress that came to mind. A play actor, somebody who's trying to act in a role, someone who's saying lines, someone who's not really, you know, that character. They just play one on TV. And so that would have come to mind for a lot of these people. But a lot of the folks who were reading were thinking about the teachings of Jesus. And Jesus spent an entire chapter in the book of Matthew talking about hypocrisy, he spent an entire chapter in the book of Matthew talking about the Pharisees. And he pronounced woes, W-O-E's, on the Pharisees. And the reason he did is he said that they don't have lives that match up to their mouths. And they're keeping people from the kingdom. Now, what's the best way to dismiss somebody? To ignore them, right? Right? We don't have to pick fights with everybody we disagree with. And Jesus did not have to give an entire chapter of the New Testament 
to talk about the Pharisees and to talk about the reasons that he had problems with the way they lived. There were seven different problems Jesus illustrated. And this is the principle you and I have to take. We need to be careful not to condemn the Pharisees so harshly, lest we become the Pharisees. The reason Jesus kept talking about them is you and I have these same tendencies in our life. And I want to really drive home the point. We have to live a life without hypocrisy. So here are the seven woes, my paraphrase found in Matthew 23. You can dive in and read it if you'd like to. Matthew 23. The first thing Jesus said the Pharisees did is he said, woe to you because you slam the door to the kingdom of God. You may say, well, I don't slam doors to the kingdom of God. I hold the doors open at church every Sunday morning. I say, welcome, nice to see you. It's not at all what we're talking about. Jesus says, you slam the door to the kingdom of God because you decide who gets to get in and who has to stay out. And you still may be a little more insulated saying, that's not me, I don't do that. But I want to push you a little. I want to nudge you a little because we're friends. You do. And so do I. The author Anne Lamont says that we know we've successfully created God in our image when he hates the same people we do. Now, God doesn't hate, but sometimes that's the way we think. And you and I come to strong opinions, and just because we're Christians, assume that God agrees with us, and we take our opinions and we wield them like a club, and we drive the people out of our lives who don't agree with our perspective or point of view. And we Christians do it all the time. What, you voted differently than me? You certainly can't be a believer. You certainly should. I'm not going to be in heaven with you. You're a Democrat. You're a Republican. You're an independent. I can't, not, uh-uh. And we drive a wedge. Oh, you got a vaccine? I'm anti-vax. We drive a wedge. Well, I'm, I'm anti-vax and you got a vaccine. We can't be friends. You're wearing a mask. I'm not wearing a mask. I'm not going to be friends with you. But I, I mean, we get, we get so crazy with stuff sometimes. We go a lot further than that. You were born in this place. At one point in time, it was skin of a different color. You don't have the right income. You don't have the right background. You look like you've struggled a little more than some other people. And we, if we're not careful, go through life trying to prove our own superiority and that we're right, and we alienate everybody else, and we slam the door in their face, essentially saying the kingdom's not for you. God doesn't care about you. He only cares about me and my kind of people. I hope that hits a little close to home for you because I know that it stepped on my toes as well. Number two, he says, woe to you Pharisees because you win converts, but you only win them to make them religious. Again, churches have not done a great job of avoiding this. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, I hope you're asking that question because I want to tell you what I mean. I have been in church for 51 years. I've been in lots and lots of churches. Some of you maybe have the same experiences or similar to my experiences. Some of you may be brand new. But there are many churches who set up a subculture, a language, a point of view, a value system. And if you notice and you look real carefully, they all look the same and dress the same and act the same. And it becomes almost like this Stepford kind of a community. 
and we want to win converts, but we want to conform them to the image of the church or to our image of a nice person or what's religious. And we say, clean up your life, you know, stop doing what you're doing, become a nice person, and then you can come. And if you stick around long enough, then you'll be part of our church. And we sort of brainwash people. And we forget that there's a personal relationship with Jesus. And what we want is for someone to walk with Jesus, not necessarily to live in the image of some religious person's idea of what that looks like. And Jesus says, be very careful that you're not making converts to create them in your own image. Number three, the Pharisees. Jesus says, woe to you because you nitpick which laws are important and which ones aren't. Again, you may say, I don't do it. And I would say, yes, you do. We choose which laws we think are important and which ones we don't. Because you judge people for certain sins that you don't judge yourself for, and you judge people for certain sins that maybe they shouldn't be judged for. Perhaps we shouldn't be judging anyone and doing a little more loving, but we separate and we categorize. Some of them are cultural. Some of them are social. The church I grew up in, the pastor, could have been full of pride and rage, probably kept his job for a while, but had he smoked a cigarette outside, you know, in the foyer um, when people were being dismissed from the first service, he'd have been fired by noon because they would have taken certain things at certain times in certain cultures and decided they were more distasteful than others, right? Some people would say, how would a pastor give away a lottery ticket even though it was for free? The lottery's not good, but yet they would go have a glass of wine. Somebody would say, well, I would have a glass of wine, but I wouldn't do, we take all of these things that we think are big deals when in reality, the Bible may say they're not big deals at all. And we choose which ones we want to drive home and we say, you're different than me. And I don't like it. I have a hard time understanding it. I was raised a different way. My grandma told me different. And we choose which ones we want to enforce. But then when we talk about another one, you're like, well, of course it's okay. Why is it okay? Because it's mine. And the Pharisees picked and chose what they wanted to make a big deal so that they could control other people by creating a culture of obedience to the culture and not to Christ. Following me? I'm not asking if you agree. Am I communicating? Okay, I told you I want to take this, put it right there. You can disagree with the Bible, with me, whatever you want. Um, number four, woe to you, the Pharisees, who tithe legalistically. Now, it's not because they tithe. Tithing is a good thing. Giving generously to the Lord is an important thing. But the Pharisees tithed down to the tenth of their spices, their mint, their cumin, their spices, and they bragged about it and told everybody how devout and faithful they were, but they destroyed lives. And Jesus said, woe to you who think it's a big deal when you do the externals, but you destroy the lives of the people who are around you. Number five, he said, you do a great job of looking churchy. You clean it up on Sunday mornings. You know how to use the phrases, praise God, brother. Jesus is Lord, hallelujah, amen. We can quote scriptures. We can give people religious platitudes and say things that make them feel good. And he says, you do a great job polishing up the outside. But in reality, the inside's as dirty as dirty can be. It's so hard for us to avoid that. So hard for us. But Jesus says, woe, if you fall into that trap. Happy are the people who live lives without hypocrisy. 
Number six is similar but different. Looking godly in the devotions, the devout ways. They can pray a prayer that'll blow you away. They can talk about all these spiritual things that they've done in the past. Usually their testimony is something that happened when they were six or seven and the things that they discuss about their spiritual lives happened 10 or 12 years ago. You do a great job looking godly, but at the end, we're hopelessly selfish. And if we're not careful, we create cultures of selfishness and we look at things, including our relationship with God, by what he can do for me and not what I need to be doing for him. All right, finally, being like their fathers, woe to you who are like your dad. I love my dad. When somebody says, you're like your dad, I say, thank you, not really. Wish I was. Some of us don't have dads that were quite as great. That's not at all what Jesus was really talking about. He says, your forefathers, you say that you worship the same prophets that they killed, and by the way, you're gonna kill me too. It's just a matter of time. Now, These are the woes. Jesus was defining in detail hypocrisy when the apostle Paul says, my prayer for you is you can be happy. And if you're gonna be happy, you're gonna be pure. You're gonna have a life that can be held up to sunlight without cracks. And you're gonna live a life without hypocrisy. And you're like, my gosh, that's hard. And I'd be, yeah, it's hard, but it's supernatural. The Holy Spirit does it and this is how. And there's one thing we have to do, which is stay away from certain sins. And there's a way to do that. And then there's something the Holy Spirit does. Now we're gonna pick the pace up here. We're about to land the plane. Again, the apostle Paul in the book of Galatians, he says, there are some things here that you have to avoid to stay away from. And there's a way to do that. Keeping in mind that the secret to life, the way a life is measured is in how we give it away, not in what we consume. The apostle Paul says, look, the acts of the flesh, the acts of hypocrisy, the acts of being blameless, the acts of having cracks in our lives that we're trying to hide, they're obvious. I don't even have to write this list, but I'm going to anyway. He says, they are sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. That's a lot of words that the apostle Paul, and at the end he says, and the like, because he says, I can go on but I don't have to because you all know these are the things I'm talking about. Now we've discussed this list before and Paul's lists before, but this list is really broken down into three categories. One is sexual indulgence without conscience. Number two is creating God in our image, expecting him to be the magic genie in the box and to give us what we want or we're gonna throw a temper tantrum. And number three has to do with how we treat other people and how we live in community. And then he turns the corner. Now notice two things very quickly. The first is the plural nature of the word acts. These are some things that we do that we need to stop doing. There's a way to do that, by the way. And as long as we stay away from these things and allow the Lord to be God in our lives, the Holy Spirit does something in us supernatural. But the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, I want you to, to look at one very quick thing as we kind of get ready to land this plane. The first list is all about consumption. The world is about me. 
I'm going to get mine. doesn't matter how it affects you. I'm going to consume. First list, stay away from the consumption mentality. Stay away from the it's all about me mentality. Stay away from the I have to win and I'm going to get mine no matter what mentality. And if we stay away from it by giving our life away, the Holy Spirit for a believer, for a Christian, creates this in us. This love, this joy, this peace, this patience, this gentleness, this kindness, this self-control. And then at the end, the apostle Paul says, against these things, there's no law. Against these things, we don't even need the cops. If we lived this way, we wouldn't have to have anybody telling us to stop it or to mediate disputes or to, to settle lawsuits or to put people in jail. He said, if we let the Holy Spirit control our lives, the whole world would be different. Now, the good list is contributing. And this is really where God blew my mind this last week. Sometimes I'm a little slow on the uptake, I think. You can study the same passage for 30 years and all of a sudden go, wow, I didn't quite see it that way. Thank you, Lord. The good list, the list of the fruit of the Spirit, a list of what the Holy Spirit creates in us, which by the way reflects Jesus, is a contributing list. These things only exist in relationship to other people. The Bible never says, I'm gonna make you gentle so that you can sit by yourself and enjoy how gentle you are. My patience, my patience exudes all patience because I live by myself, for myself, and of course I can be patient with myself, right? It only exists in relationship to other people because we're created to live in a community and we're created to serve like Jesus and the measure of a life is taken by how much of our lives we give away. When we repeatedly and consistently put ourselves in a place where we give ourselves away, we're moving away from the consumption mentality which this first list is filled with and embracing this contributing, life-giving, spirit-filled mentality that brings true happiness. We have a, an award that we're gonna give out again. This is a, a, a award for service. It's a challenge coin award. And we do this because we celebrate what we want repeated and we celebrate what we believe brings true happiness. And I believe this is our fourth um, award that we're giving away. And today we have a, a, a man and his daughter, some volunteers, come on up, Sean and Ava, who have been serving faithfully. Now, Sean is extremely humble, as is Ava, and I'm going to say some things about them that he probably uh, would be uncomfortable with me saying, but I'm going to say them anyway. He's a man who has learned the secret that many of us still need to learn, and that is that you cannot outserve the Lord and that it's impossible to give yourself away to the point where you're worn out, burned out, washed up, fed up, and done, that by some supernatural miracle, God continues to develop in you something that's out of your control. And the more you give, the more we receive. And Sean and Ava, you've probably never even seen them on a Sunday morning. Ava, you're 16 years old, right? 10th grade. Sean and Ava, um, they run the the lights 
and the video for you every Sunday morning. And this is the reason they do it. One is so that you can encounter the word, the message without any distractions. And number two, so that you can invite your friends who don't know Jesus to come here and hear the word without any, any distractions. And when I say every week, these guys are here almost every single week up there where nobody sees them. Ava working the lights. You don't work them like that, do you? No, that would be weird, wouldn't it? We would be like, yeah, that's how I would work them. Yeah, that's why I'm not up there. And then Sean, with these slides, so conscientious that after a church service, he'd be like, man, next week, he said, if you got a thought like this, or you know, if you're thinking like that, maybe I can put the slide up to help the church be able to see this. Last night, I texted Sean later in the evening, and I said, Sean, I'm gonna use an illustration at the end of church, and I don't have a picture for it. He went and looked for pictures. I don't know what he was doing. He stopped what he was doing, sent me the pictures. I mean, serving you guys. And he's doing it because... He's experienced the joy and the happiness from serving. And I wanna make sure that we tell you guys thank you and we just wanna give you a service award, Sean and, and Ava. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I would maybe just like to say that um, the end of Philippians 1.9 ends with to the glory and praise of God, which is why you do it. I spent a really long time playing church or pretending church, and it wasn't until I stopped doing that that some of the churchy phrases like being born again, dying to self, actually made sense. So there's a whole team of people that help pull off a production like this you know, every, every Sunday, and we don't do it to be aesthetically pleasing um, or to just look nice or to be entertaining but there might be people here today that need to meet with God. Right. And it's about creating a place where that worship can happen. That's right. So thank you. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks very much. Yep. As a father of two boys, um, 23 and 26, which I talk about all the time, I just love to see the two of them serving together. And uh, studies have shown that when we have our kids serving that they continue to serve later in life. There are all kinds of health benefits and emotional benefits. It's, it's phenomenal. Um, when you celebrate a life at the end, how many of you have been to a funeral? Raise your hands. I want to make sure we're all together. All of us have been to memorials and funerals. Um, I don't mind doing a memorial. Weddings, I'm not a fan of. Um, funerals, no big deal, right? Funerals, you make everybody feel better. You bring the person sort of back to life in a way that do memories. And um, what do you remember for, about the people? What do you choose to remember about people who pass? You never remember and celebrate the bad list of stuff, right? You never say, you know, grandpa slept with every woman that he could find. There wasn't a woman that he didn't chase. And he had so many girlfriends. And if grandpa was awake, he was probably lying. And he drank so much. I'm surprised anybody else in the county had anything to drink. And grandpa was such a scoundrel, you couldn't give him 20 bucks and expect him to bring home change when he went to the store. You just don't celebrate that stuff, do you? The measure of a life, the quality of a life is measured in how much we give away. What are the things that we celebrate about people? We celebrate the things that are given to other people. The way we serve, the way we show Jesus to other people, the way we nudge them toward the power of the gospel. Here's what I want you to uh, end with, this word picture, this idea, this image. There is a sea in the Middle East called the Dead Sea. You guys, if you haven't been there, you probably know what I'm talking about. 
the lowest place on earth. If not, it's one of the lowest. I think it's still the lowest. And it's a sea where a lot of stuff flows in, water, and nothing flows out. About 87 miles away, there's the Sea of Galilee, which is so beautiful. People jet ski, and it's kind of weird to think about the Sea of Galilee we read about in the Bible, and people like jet skiing and swimming and stuff. It's like, don't do that. That's Jesus Lake, right? But still, I mean, it's like recreation, yachts. And, and then 87 miles away, we have this sea, this lake, where water goes in, but nothing flows out. And scientists are a little perplexed because it's shrinking every year. The last statistic that I read was three feet every year. The sea that's continually receiving, consuming, things pouring in, it's shrinking. You see the shoreline. Right now, they're pumping tens of thousands of gallons of water into it to try to keep it alive. And one day, eventually, it's going to be a dried up, crusty hole. We can't be like the Dead Sea. The solution to having a pure and blameless life is to give our lives away, to serve like Jesus served, and to experience a freedom and happiness that we've only dreamed possible. Father, thank you for my friends.